Welcome to Friend Wings Podcast, where Smashville and Hockey Town collide. And now your hosts, Brett and Ron White and D-Law, Dan Lawless. We have a special guest here on the PWP, Tom Callahan, former Predators radio broadcaster, and Tom is currently host and producer of Talking Puck TV, airing live every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook Live, as well as the Talking Puck Podcast, along with his co-host and veteran NHL voice himself, Mike Haynes. Tom breaks down what's going on in and around the world of hockey. You can follow him on Twitter at Callahan on Air. So welcome, Tom. Welcome, Tom. Well, thank you for having me on. Pleasure to be here. So, first, uh, I don't know if a lot of our listeners uh, know about you yet, but uh, he, you're actually from the Western New York area. So, just briefly. Discuss your journey from uh, the Western New York area to the Predators and, and then now you're uh, talking Puck TV. Yeah, absolutely. I um, grew up in the Buffalo area, specifically I'm from Lackawanna, and went to college in Rochester um, at St. John Fisher College. And I went to St. Uh, St. Francis High School. And as I was getting close to graduation uh, at Fisher, I was looking around trying to figure out what to do. And I always really enjoyed uh, calling hockey games. I actually got to do one on, uh, or a couple actually, on public access TV back when I was a freshman in high school. Um, I did a, a amateur game of the week for for a station. I think it was W58 AV TV. So that was the first time I ever called games on TV. Uh, and then got to do some other things while I was in college. I called the uh, National Junior Championships for Botano, North Dakota, because they were the championships are in Buffalo. And so they picked me up as a, as a play-by-play guy to do those. And so I'd done some, a little bit of it and I loved it, but I had no idea how to get into it. And that's when I really started fishing around, found out about minor league hockey. Um, and at first I started in just regular radio, but I was covering some high school sports, was able to make a tape off of that. And that's really when the journey started. Uh, from there, I ended up uh, with jobs in the Western Professional Hockey League. I worked for two teams in Texas. Then I moved back to New York State. I worked in Elmira, New York for three years in what used to be the United Hockey League. Uh, Augusta, Georgia, four years after that in the East Coast League. Went to the uh, Peoria Riverman of the American League. I was there for one year and then got the call to Nashville. Ended up in Nashville for five seasons, uh, did the play-by-play there, did some stuff with NHL Network, and then kind of segued over to ESPN Radio in Nashville as a host. Uh, did that for almost three years, but then I really decided I missed hockey. So I decided I was going to go back into hockey, went to Indianapolis for a year, uh, and that was, again, the ECHL, and then uh, came down here where I live now to Tucson, Arizona, uh, to help start up the Tucson Roadrunners. Was here for two years, uh, and then, you know, things kind of changed out. The Coyotes changed ownership. Um, a lot of things changed internally, and I ended up working for the University of Arizona. I called games for them uh, and serve as their media director. Along the way, while I was working at ESPN, uh, I decided that 
I wanted to do something hockey specific and there was no room for me to do that within the context of working at ESPN. They didn't want a hockey specific show or anything at that point. So I came up with the idea for talking puck. I've been doing podcasts prior to that. I did a predators one. I did a Sabres one uh, with a friend of mine who was a Sabres reporter. Um, and then I just said, why don't I do a hockey one, which I did for several years. And I enjoyed it uh, doing the hockey podcast. And then uh, it kind of grew. I have a website that I really don't do a whole lot with and really should. Uh, but I don't. I don't write nearly as much. But then Twitch came around and YouTube and the ability to stream live. And so I decided to try to investigate live streaming TV and, uh, you know, it, in today's day and age, you don't have to work for ESPN to have your own show. So I learned how to stream. I learned how to use OBS software. Uh, I put together a package and I learned to do all those things. And, and then for the last, I think it's been three seasons now, I've been joined by the former voice of the Colorado Avalanche, Mike Haynes. So we're two former NHL voices who still love talking hockey. We do it once a week on Sunday nights. And then we do podcasts during the week, and we both have opinions. We both have a lot of stories, and it's nice because we don't always agree with each other, but uh, we, ju we just love it, you know, and uh, we love talking about the game, and uh, Mike is a big proponent, as am I, of women's hockey, and he's got kids who play, a son and a daughter, and, and you know, it just it's nice to try to help grow that game, not only with the fans of today, but uh, of folks who are – Coming down the line, you know, I have a niece and a nephew who are getting to the age where, you know, they're learning to skate and maybe we'll be playing hockey. So uh, it's important for me to, you know, pass that excitement and enthusiasm that I have. I love the sport of hockey and I want to keep it going. Yeah, so you touched on the women's uh, uh, hockey how, what's your thoughts about the new uh, women's pro league uh, that they're trying to get started? I wish more people would would pay attention to it. Honestly, um, it it's good hockey, and I like women's sports in a lot of ways uh, because sometimes with men's sports, uh, it comes down to a lot of just you know, physical on physical, and sometimes the stronger player or team is just going to win regardless of skill level. And of course, that varies sport to sport. But, um, you know, I think women's sports is, it is every bit as competitive, first of all. Second of all, um, there's a lot more of the pure game in it, of the technical elements. And, uh, you know, and they're feisty, man, do they compete. And it's fun to watch. Uh, I really enjoy, you know, the, the women's hockey. I try to follow, I, I follow the Buffalo Buttes as much as I can. And plus, honestly, I love it because, you know, as I said earlier, I've got a young niece. I think that's a great role model for her to see women professional athletes. And I, I just really hope the league kind of finds an audience. People who don't watch it because they say it's not the NHL. Well, of course it's not the NHL. It's never going to be the NHL. That's not the point. Uh, it, 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 I think people really need to watch and see the quality of the hockey that's being played in, in that league and, and really decide for themselves. But, uh, I, I really like it and I really do hope it grows. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, looking at here in Rochester, we, we've got the Rochester edge, 
um, which is the all-girls program here, and they typically go out and they compete extremely well. And I actually feel like they could compete in a lot of the, you know, men's uh, age level just because, you know, maybe not in the physical aspect of it, but as you had mentioned, you know, the skillful part of it, um, you know, and, and you also have, you know, in Detroit, the, the Little Caesars, um, you know, they, they have a great – or uh, they've got a great league. They always compete at extremely high levels as well. And, you know, I think it's great that they are bringing – the ladies sports into the professional realm i think it's you know i have two daughters myself and to your point i think it's awesome that they have somebody or teams and in, in additional sports that they can look into and they can have you know look to the future of being a professional athlete so i i agree with you and plus college isn't getting any cheaper <laughs> so scholarships no. are available you know for for these sports and um it doesn't hurt and you learn a lot from athletics. I'm not saying you should, you know, go athletics at the the sacrifice of your schoolwork, but you know, there's things you learn in a team sport, in an individual sport that you can't learn in a classroom. Uh, there's a lot of life lessons and friendship building that goes on with those team building exercises. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think any opportunity there is to expand and level the playing field, uh, I'm all for it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I, I gotta ask you. So having worked for the Nashville Predators, you've gotten some exposure to some of the guys, I'm sure, right? Oh, yes. Okay. Now, do you have any stories that you can share um, or tell us who your favorite might have been to maybe enjoy some time with? You know, uh, so I have – I liked a bunch of different guys for different reasons. Um, and a lot of them are not the name brand household guys. Um, so I'll, I'll just kind of name a couple real quick, but okay. uh, I always loved Jared Smithson because Smithson was, he was a nice guy in victory and defeat. He was a class mm-hmm. act. And unfortunately uh, Smitty knew that when the Preds lost, I was probably going to ask him to comment or, you know, do an interview. And so anytime he did something good, I always tried to make sure I repaid the favor and got him on for an interview segment or did a pregame with him. But he was always the guy in the middle of a five game losing streak. 18 of those 20 guys disappear into the shower faster than you can believe, but he would always be there to talk. And I always appreciated that. Um, Jack Baker, came through real quick in Nashville in my time there. Wasn't there long at all, but uh, Bakes, I did an interview with him one time and we were sitting there and he was breaking stuff down and such a, and after we were done, I was listening to him do these breakdowns and this, this technical analysis on stuff. I said, you ever thought about being a broadcaster when you're done? He's like, well, yeah, I've thought about it because you're really good. Um, you know, so if anybody, you know, was looking for a former player who, you know, might make a good broadcaster, I don't know what Jack Baker's doing now, but man, he was good. Um, so I really, I, I liked him. Frankie Bouillon, one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. Uh, fantastic human being, really liked him. Uh, was always just in a good mood, um, played hard, but just a genuinely good person. Uh, Pecorino is another guy who is fantastic. Uh, Pex was always good. And I liked him because me growing up as a goalie uh, and playing goal, uh, when I went to talk to him, it wasn't always about, hey, you know, what happened in the game last night. A lot of times I'd be, hey, 
what's what's up with the new mask or hey talk to me about your new pads and it was you know nothing i was recording we were just chatting because i was genuinely interested in what he had going on so um it was always fun to talk to him too and uh there's a lot of good guys have come and gone through that locker room and i'd be remiss if i didn't mention barry trotz and david poyle um you know i i went through some hard times uh while i was with the preds and you know just stuff that in my personal life was was difficult um and they were both very supportive and and very you know good to me so i always want to you know, give them a nod and, and Mitch Korn, I got to mention Mitch Korn. He was always awesome. I still talk to Mitch, um, here and there. So it's, uh, it's nice. It, it, it really is about relationships in the game and the people you meet along the way. I mean, yeah, we talk about some of the games and the highlights and the calls and all that, but you know, at the end of the day, I more remember the day to day of being around these guys than anything else. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And the one thing that I've noticed in the sport of hockey is just the guys, you know, from what you read about, what you see. I mean, of course, there's going to be your few bad eggs, but a lot of these guys are really down to earth, fun, energetic, you know, good people. I just feel like the sport of hockey, um, I don't want to say it's above the other sports, but I feel like the, it brings a new level of class, um, just how some of these guys conduct themselves. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes they tone down their personalities for the camera, um, which in some cases is a shame, um, you know, because they're really either really funny or really smart, um, you know, or really passionate about something in, in almost a dorky way, but you don't, it doesn't really come across. Um, it just, you know, some guys, you point a camera at them and it's just cliche, 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 thank you. Uh, and it, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I just, you know, we talk about wanting a little more personality in the game. Um, I, I wish that some guys were able to relax a little more in front of the camera, but at the same time, I mean, understanding that's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to talk. Yeah. And, and I was, uh, actually fortunate enough to attend the Packer Red A Jersey retirement, uh, 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 in February. And that was just, it, it was just amazing. I bet it was, uh, unfortunately I was not there, but I, I can only imagine how crazy that crowd can be. Oh. I mean, I've been there for some pretty momentous moments inside that arena. And of course the first one I think of is, you know, eliminating Detroit, uh, in that it's, oh, it's a, the Pred Wings podcast. Oh, I'm going to bring you're it up. You're killing me. <laughs> it ended Nicholas Lidstrom's career. Are you kidding me? Beat him so uh. bad, drove him out of the league. No. Um, but, uh, you know, speaking of class acts, holy cow, Nicholas Lidstrom, incredible. Yeah, it's great um, to have him with the organization right now in Detroit. Yes. He was one of the very few players. Uh, I'll tell you this quick story. He was one of the very few players, no matter what question you asked him, he would not answer right away. He'd think about it for maybe five seconds, and then he would answer your question. He actually thought about and took your question seriously, whereas some guys are just, like I said earlier, three cliches and out. He thought about it, and he really gave you a thoughtful answer and what he was really thinking. I always appreciated that about Nick Lidstrom. Yeah, he's a pretty – they say he's pretty smart. Him and uh, Igor Larionov were, you know – like Iserman says, and I don't know what your thoughts are on, on this, and um, but that's one of the, the names that I've read quite a few times to possibly jump behind the bench for Detroit 
And it's, you know, Iserman's words where he was the smartest player on the ice that I've ever played with. Um, so, yeah, I, I can definitely understand Lidstrom as well. Um, you know, like you said, very classy guy, very smart on the ice. And you could just tell, like, as he was playing that he's, like, overthinking his next two moves on the ice. But, yeah, he was he was always fun to watch. I, I loved growing up watching him and, you know, just glad, like I said, to have him back in the organization helping Stevie Y out and hopefully right in the ship here. Yeah, he was playing chess while everybody else was playing checkers. Right. So did you ever have, you know, I know you talked about meeting some guys. I want to bounce back to that for one second. Um, and you, you had mentioned something about how the guys should really, you know, just be who they are on camera because they're funny and whatnot. Who, what do you, can you share any wild stories that you might know of about some of the guys and what they might have done on a road trip or just in general pranks, whatever? So, unfortunately, most of the stories I could share would be, would be about players no one knows anymore because it was all in the minors and it was early in my career. When I started, um, that was the tail end of really that kind of bygone now era of that 80s, 90s, you know, tough guys and uh, guys were still running around. When I first started and I was working in that Western Professional Hockey League, I mean, players were coming out between periods and having cigarettes with each other out between the locker rooms and just chatting. And um, you don't see that. Guys don't even smoke anymore. Wow. Anywhere. And uh, it just it's different. The game demands more physically of you um and yeah there's still some guys who like to go out and party and have a good time but they just they don't even party like they used to and you can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but to me it just is you are expected to be in better shape all the time you are under a lot more pressure because there's a lot more money there's endorsements um the average nhl career is less than five years and I don't think a lot of people know that because we pay attention to the players who are 15, 20 year, you know, amazing stories. And we look at those guys and all the money they make, like the Sidney Crosby's of the world. But for every Sidney Crosby, there is 200 guys who had a cup of coffee and were out. So the competition's intense and one false step or if you let's say you are a guy that likes to go out, have a good time. If a GM has a choice between you and another guy who, let's say, same stats, let's say 20 goals, 50 points, the money is the same. But one guy is a good, quiet guy, takes care of himself, stays in shape, and the other guy's a partier, guess who the GM's going to want to sign? You know, it's just the, that's the way it is. Absolutely. Yeah. It yeah, almost reminds me of, like, is. Bob Probert in the 80s, crashing his car, drunk all the time, the drugs. Um you know, Detroit just could not keep him out of trouble. They even had a handler for a while, and he just was unbelievable. Yeah, but, and that's a thankless job, too, because you're not doing anything right. You're either pissing off the player or the organization. Yep, yep. Yeah. But you're right. You're right. It just, it's completely different. So, unfortunately, no, I don't. I honestly don't have much from my, my time with the Preds. Of course, everybody knows about what happened in the Phoenix playoff series with uh, Kostitsin and Radulov, uh, you know, coming back mm -hmm. late, breaking curfew. But even then, that was treated as more of a, a news event than anything else. 
And of course, you know, a lot of Eastern European players are, they're their own animals and they kind of do their own thing, but um, it just, you know, it, it's, it, it's just not common anymore. Yeah, I could, I could see that. Cause I know, you know, again, I keep referencing Detroit, but you know, that was one thing that that's, you know, Steve Eiserman pointed out probably midway through the year was, you know, you got to realize that these guys are on the go all the time and they haven't, 19 20 21 year old kids adjusting to life where you know tonight we're in arizona and tomorrow we're in new york city and you're playing back-to-back games he's like you just you're not used to that your body's not used to it you're used to playing a game maybe you play a tournament you go home but this is like always going and practice in between so yeah i can definitely see where it'd be hard to really get out and, and get into trouble when you you know you're always on the go yeah, and I mean, even the the era. Not every coach is a disciplinarian. Uh, you know, not every guy is is, you know, telling his guys they've got to shut it down all the time. But honestly, it's just not. It, it's different now. Barry Trotz actually said it best, and I love this quote. Uh, he said, "Coaching had changed," and this was towards the end of his tenure in Nashville. He said, "Coaching has changed. Each of these guys is like their own little corporation. They're their own little business." And that is so different than what it used to be. Um, but they are managing their own little business as themselves. And that's how a lot of them think of it. And, and it's, I mean, we wouldn't think of it that way. We'd be like, oh, I'm a pro athlete. This is wild. I'm earning a lot of money. This is cool. You know, it's just, but it's not. It's also a lot of pressure. Yeah, endorsements. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've never really thought about it that way. Yeah, that's that's great. So you uh you kind of touched on uh, your favorite calls. I just what what is uh, what was your best uh, game that you called? Why? Uh, I I did. I, and again, here let me let me shove the the fork in deeper and twist it. I did oh, enjoy yeah. the beating Detroit. Um, there's there's just some games though that stick out. So that was Lidstrom's last game. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Peter Forsberg's last game was against Nashville. Uh, and I remember calling that one. Um, here, I'll give you a, a positive Detroit highlight. Um, I remember, I know Dan Ellis was in net, and it was towards the end of the game in Detroit in Joe Louis Arena, and Pavel Datsuk just walked four different guys. And I want to say even Suter and Weber might have been the defense pair at the time, but he just walked four different guys and scored an amazing goal uh, against the Predators. And i never forget that one. Uh, you know, that and that whole like that series was amazing. Rena made some killer saves. And, you know, that was a really, really good Detroit team against a really, really good Nashville team. Um, I remember my first game that I called, which was in St. Louis. And that was neat for me, especially because the year before I'd been with St. Louis's AHL affiliate. I probably in that first game knew more about the Blues than I knew about the Predators. <laughs> Uh, but at least I had something to talk about because when I got into Nashville, I actually got in in the second week of training camp. They hired me in September. And by the time I moved to Nashville with my then fiance, uh, we literally, by the time we found a house and I was able to get everything packed up and move from Peoria. Yeah. Camp had already been going on. Uh, I think I had five or six days till the start of the regular season. And we That's started on the road in St. Louis. Yeah, it is. It, it really, homework. it was. Now, how but, terrified you know, were you? You do it. 
announcing against St. Louis? Like how, how, I mean, it's gotta be, I mean, totally mentally almost trying on you getting in front of the mic and getting ready to call your first game ever. You know, how nervous were you? Not at all. Wow. I was so happy to be there. Um, and, and a, a big part of it is I love performing. I love like I, there are people who have a fear of public speaking or a fear of being on stage. That does not exist for me. I don't have it. I've never had it. Uh, I've never met a microphone or a stage I don't like. So the other thing too, here's a fun little tidbit. Um, the year before my one year in Peoria, Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues on the radio invited me to do half of the second period of a game on KMOX in St. Louis. And I did. Uh, and that game was against Nashville. Just happened to be that the Preds were there. And I, I met Pete Weber and Terry Crisp uh, and talked to them. And then Kerber let me come into the booth and do half a period. And it was the most dull, boring, unexciting period of hockey I have ever seen. Thomas Vokun made one save. I didn't even get a highlight out of it. Uh-huh. Out of my first 10 minutes or so of NHL action. It just, nothing happened. So as Chris Kerber was handing me the headset, as I was getting into the booth to do that half of the period, he said, I hope it's the most exciting period of hockey. Or, you know, he's like, I hope somebody has a hat trick for you and you get all these highlights and it's awesome. And nothing, absolutely nothing happened. So I couldn't even get a highlight out of out of that half of period. But I did it. Uh, and, you know, that was my NHL debut. But... I've always loved it. I've always loved being on the radio. I love talking about hockey. I love being on, you know, TV or even on the streaming stuff on Sunday nights with Mike. I can't wait for the show to start. I, I've never, ever met a stage or a microphone or a camera that I didn't like. And so, yeah, ner- nerves just never entered into the equation. I, I just yeah. always loved it. I, to me, it's performing, and I love performing. Man, and I had... Oh, I have to say that uh, when you did the radio call, I, um, I know I like I love uh, uh, Pete Weber, um, but I would always listen to your radio call. I would mute the, I would actually mute the TV if I was watching the TV. But a lot of times I would just radio just listen. But I I just loved it, and, and I I went to a lot of games uh, during that time, and I believe. I think you might have been doing the post-game shows a few times. I just wanted to let you know about that. Yeah, he, he's... Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I always... I always. It's funny because, you know, one of the things you're trained to do is time and score, time and score, time and score. And somebody one time thanked me for giving the time and score so often, not because they were driving in their car and needed to know what the time and score was, but because what they did is they paused their DVR on the game and matched up the time to when I said the time, and then they would play the game from there while listening to me. <laughs> so, a little DVR trick. They used to DVR the game, and they'd pause it by, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds, whatever the delay was, and uh, and try to match it up, match the radio up with the, the broadcast. Oh, that's awesome. That's funny. Yeah, see, I, I was... I mean, I know, I know Dan wasn't too nervous, but even just getting on a podcast, like I'm, I'm not nervous in front of fans or people like that. I mean, crowds, but for some reason, like getting on this thinking, you know, the first thing I thought was, man, if, if somebody actually tunes this in, they could be listening to me from literally anywhere in the entire world. And it kind of like just made me think, man, this is a, you know, it's a, it's kind of a big picture thing. 
And, you know, especially in, in the limelight of being on, you know, an NHL broadcast and, you know, now you've got, you know, millions of people potentially listening to you, not one on a podcast, but millions of people, you know, to me, that would just be a lot of pressure until I got probably about halfway through a period, I might finally settle in and settle down, but that's incredible that you just jump right in and, and just go. One of, well, actually there is only one secret to not being nervous and that's being prepared. Uh, the most important thing I impress. So even today I work with students uh, with the university of Arizona and I work with them on the, the broadcast and I still do some play by play, but I also let the students jump in there and, and pretty much do everything. I, I want them to learn everything. And, you know, some of them say, well, I'm nervous or I'm this or I'm that. And I say, well, I, and I understand that, you know, it's, you're wearing a headset now and your volume's turned up and people can hear you. Yep. But if you know your stuff, you don't have to hesitate to say something because you know it. You don't have to think, oh man, is this right? Am I going to quote this, this factoid right? Am I going to get this nugget right? Because you know it. And so you just slip it in there. And I used to have note cards in front of me. Um, I have a lot of stories about Detroit, but one night in Joe Lewis in Detroit, and this never happened. Um, I would write down both player notes and team notes for both teams. There was one night in Detroit where every storyline I anticipated, every note that I had written down, I used every single one of them. And I gave my last little, little nugget with probably four minutes to go in the third period. And I actually told people on the air, I said, this has never happened to me before in my broadcast career, but I have actually used every note I have prepared for this game in this broadcast. Wow. And it's never happened before or since, but just one time I got it right. Um, but, but I was prepared. And, you know, if you forget, it's written down in front of you and you can always go back and bring it up later too. So um, that kind of stuff is just what makes you confident in what you're doing and how you're doing it is just being ready to answer the bell. Yeah. And I, and I agree. And I'm sure Dan would agree as well that, you know, since we started doing this, we've gotten more, um, like you said, prepared, we have notes, we write down exactly what segments we're going to get into. And it, and it allows us to kind of dig a little bit deeper than we would just scratching the surface because now we have, you know, those, we have those finite details that allow us to get deeper instead of being afraid, like you said, of giving that nugget wrong. And then any listeners that we have, you know, they'll call us out and we'll be wrong and we, we lose our credibility. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree that um, preparation is certainly key. Um, and I do have a question. You brought up how you were working with some of the students over at the University of Arizona. Um, what are your thoughts on Arizona like what are your thoughts on their current situation um, you know what it what it might be to the NHL and to the other players in the league um, to play to play within their facility well so as they leave Glendale which is a nice building um, there's it's funny I was actually talking to someone I know very well is pretty plugged in up there and gave me some more insight into the situation, um, which is not 
is not really ready for prime time yet as far as confirmation and, and you know, you, you got to get more than one source before you go throwing something out there. But um, on the face of where things are, and the Coyotes just announced their ticket prices too, their season ticket prices for next year, and they're high. Um, you know, the average season ticket price for a building with, I want to say it's 13 rows, uh, is $159 a seat. That's the average. Um, the cheapest seats, I think, are 89 a piece on the season ticket pricing range. So not cheap. Um, again, 5,000 seat venue. Some of the challenges that are going to come up, um, number one, optics, it looks bad. Um, you know, the NHL is saying, oh, well, it's temporary solutions, this, it's that. Um, the Coyotes are just struggling to really gain a foothold where, you know, if they'd have tried this five, maybe, well, I'll, I won't say five, I'll say 10 years ago. Um, if they'd have tried to get their ducks in a row then and kind of figure out what was next after Glendale, maybe they would have been better off. Glendale from the beginning was a mistake because land was cheap. But the westward expansion of Phoenix, and this is, has nothing to do with hockey, but the westward expansion of Phoenix failed because of the 2008 housing crash. So a lot of people who had moved to what was the growing West Valley in 03040506 lost their shirts. And they left, and they left houses that were upside down, and the west side kind of became a ghost town. Only now is it starting to come back and build up again. Um, but in the meantime, everybody was on the East side. And so the coyotes kind of missed that window and they, they shot themselves in the foot along the way. They announced that they had a deal with one of the casinos, uh, like four or five years ago, turned out to not be true, was not confirmed. Uh, I think this was 2016. They made an announcement talking about a new building. Meanwhile, all they're doing is pissing off Glendale. Uh, you know, cause it's very obvious now for the last five or six years that you're trying to leave. So the city of Glendale's kind of finally had enough. And then of course, going through different ownership groups, different leadership up top. Uh, I was in that Coyotes organization. Tucson is a Coyotes farm team. And I was hired by someone who had a vision of culture change. And I bought into that vision. I wanted to come here and be a part of it because, it was there was a lot of talk of turning the franchise around and I was excited by it and I wanted to be a part of it. Um, but then that individual was gone six months later as he tried to affect that change. Uh, and it just, you know, things just kept getting worse. They ended up sold. Um, and then, you know, new ownership, God love them is really trying to, to do what they can, but there's so much debt surrounding that team and, and money wise, I just don't see how they can make it work. So, uh, it's going to be a more expensive ride if they're going to play a couple seasons in that building, but that's not the problem. The problem is if they're going to play in the Phoenix area, anywhere in the Phoenix area, they need to get an answer and a deal done within the next couple of months or the NHL is going to get antsy. And I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. Cause I, I kind of, you know, felt the same way. Um, Cause you, and you probably know more about this than I do. I, I haven't really dug too much into it. I just heard, um, you know, there was a brief, uh, I, f I forget what podcast it was, but they were talking briefly about how there's like an escrow account for the players that they pay into for 
you know, lockouts or stuff like that, there's still finances that are available. And that comes from, you know, um, you know, the venues and, and stuff like that. So you've got these teams that have to pay so much in this escrow account and now only being a 5,000 person arena, you know, they're going to get more or less exempt from this. So that just picks up these other, you know, these other players to pick up that, that tab. Um, you know, can you elaborate on, on that or do you know much about that? I don't understand that loophole. Um, I don't know the CBA that well, but I do know there are NHLPA considerations uh, of things that need to be met as far as, I mean, it's going to be as varied as, you know, secure parking for the players and locker rooms. And, and of course, all the things that go with it, it's not just locker rooms, it's training rooms, it's weight rooms, it's everything that needs to be a part of an NHL arena. Right. Medical um, facilities. People, right. So you have to have all of this nailed down. And, you know, the Coyotes just started on an annex. That is, I, I mean, look, I know you can build fast in the desert, but I don't know how they're going to be done by October. I don't know if they are. Um, so I, there's just a lot of things that I think are going to be concerns for players, both home and visiting. So, uh, you know, even those could be roadblocks. Yep. It's, it's setting up to be a big mess is what it is. And I'll be honest with you. I, I am not a hundred percent sure what the future of that team is, but man, it's going to be a roller coaster. If you're a Coyotes fan and you're listening, I'm sorry, but buckle up. Yeah. Yeah. I I kind of agree with that. Do you think you'll ever, do you think you'll see, uh, you know, a move back to Quebec? Um, if there is a team that moves to Quebec, it'll be an Eastern Conference team. It won't be. And everybody who was a potential candidate for relocation has kind of steadied the ship. The Islanders got their new arena. Yep. Carolina got new ownership that is committed to keeping them there. Um, and they're doing really well. Florida was another one people talked about, but they're doing really well. Yep. Uh, you know, great team this year. And now people are coming to Sunrise to see them play. Um, there's not a lot of weak sisters in the East as far as potential relocation. Some people brought up, you know, the senators with Eugene Melnick's death, but no, I don't see that happening because there's four or five groups who want to purchase the senators from his estate. They all have said they will keep the team in Ottawa. Now, you know, take that for what it's worth, but yeah, if it's going to be a move to Quebec, yeah, if it's going to be a move back to Quebec city, it's going to be an Eastern team. This team, the coyotes don't forget are in the central division. So there are two hockey ready buildings in two central division cities. One is Kansas city. One is Houston. So, I mean, if you, if you said, Tom, you have to put 10 bucks down on either Kansas City or Houston, I'd say Houston. I think Houston has more ducks in a row. But Kansas City has been courting the NHL for, well, really since that building was built. And we're talking probably 15 years ago now. So do you think we might see some more expansion teams in the uh, possible near future? It is possible. I didn't think the NBA was going to get any bigger, but now they're talking about adding. Um, you know, and of course people are going to say, well, you dilute the talent pool, blah, blah, blah. But now that they're at 32, I think the NHL is happy they're at 32 mm-hmm. because it's an even breakdown of four times eight. Yep. It makes sense. 
everything's just fine. Um, the real concern becomes if you go, you can't go to 33 or 34 as easily as you go to 36. Um, so would they do something where, you know, two teams one year, two teams the next year, something like that? I don't know. I, I think if they did expand, they would ultimately end up at 36. But I think right now, just having brought Seattle into the league, they're always going to look at it, but I think they're cooling their heels on it for a little bit. Yeah, but they, I think they need to fix it to playoff format. I, I'm not, I'm still not sold on that. I, I like the old, old, uh, the old format better. It's, it's actually kind of confusing. You know, well, what, what's confusing is they keep changing it, right? I mean, it's, oh, it's this change. Oh, it's that change. It's like, okay, make, make up my mind. You know, tell me what I'm supposed, tell me what the format is and just like stick to it for a couple of years so I can get used to it. Um, But, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a a friend of mine earlier today about the American Hockey League's format for this year. Oh my goodness. What a a crazy, it's crazy. Uh, And it, I literally went to the AHL's website, looked at their, their little handy graphic that they put out here. And I'm still... Just shaking my head at it. There's a lot of best of threes, a couple of best of fives, and oh, by the way, eventually it'll be normal again by the conference final. But yeesh, yeah, it's almost like it's a baseball. Fans... Well, that's all messed up anyway because they got teams that uneven teams and divisions. They got teams that aren't playing the same amount of games as other teams. It's, I don't right. understand how they can do that. Well, the reason they do it is when they they started the Pacific Division of the American Hockey League, what are we talking now? Probably six, seven years ago, maybe a little more. Um, what, what it was was those five teams that were out here, maybe it was six, said, uh, if you don't – now the NHL teams said, if you don't give us our own division in the American Hockey League, we will just form our own little league and develop our players there. And both the AHL and NHL did not want that. So they let them have a Western division where they played less games, traveled less, but still got to keep their costs in-house. And teams like San Jose have teams in their own building. Or, you know, if you're uh, the Kings, you know, your franchise is 60 miles away in Ontario, California. So that's, that's why it happened. And don't forget, team number 10 is coming into the Pacific next year with uh, Coachella Valley Firebirds. That is Seattle's farm team. So you're going to have 10 teams in the Pacific for the American Hockey League next year. The geographical unbalance. I remember when I was a kid, the AHL was exclusively in the Northeast. And it was a bus league. You know, the Springfield Falcons famously uh, went an entire season without spending a night in a hotel because they could bust to all their, their road games. You know, it's just like, it's like, Oh, well, well, maybe we got one road trip where we have an overnight. That's pretty good. That is pretty, you know, but that's not how it is anymore. Every team in the West has to fly with a couple exceptions. Some of the California teams can bus. Tucson did bus to San Diego and Ontario occasionally, but half the time you also fly. So, Keeping the the Phoenix theme, if you will, um, the game against or between um, Arizona and uh, Anaheim with Jay Beagle and Zegris and uh, Terry, that whole incident went down. 
later that day, you have Timu Solani come up and say, you know, we need to bring back enforcers or something like that. Like Ty Domi, are you in or, you know, put Ty Domi out there. I forget the exact tweet that he had, but he was referencing, you know, bringing back somebody to police the game again for the teammates. Do you think that we'll see a, a slow trend in that? Do you think that's, you know, done and completely segued out of hockey or, you know, where do you see the role of the enforcer, um, you know, is it dead or will there be a, a resurgence of it? The NHL has no appetite for fighting anymore. Um, and that's, you know, I grew up in an era and believe me, have worked alongside several enforcers uh, in my career because a lot of them do make very good color commentators. Um, but so Stu Grimson, you know, for example, uh, who I worked with over my five years of the Preds, I mean, Stu and I, we, we occasionally will talk about it and you know, that era is gone and they're not going to bring it back. The NHL is doing everything it can to curb fighting. Will it ever ban it? I don't think so. Uh, because there is the undercurrent of, Oh, guys carry their sticks higher. Now there is no retribution. Uh, you know, guys don't have to answer the bell, but there's also the, every hit you have to fight. And, you know, it's, it's weird. The, the, the way the game is played is so much, it's so different now. Uh, you know, they don't even really teach hitting anymore. You know, when I was learning to skate, uh, and learning to play, you had to learn to take a hit. You had to learn to give a hit and you learn how to prepare for the hit and defend yourself against the impact. Now guys just turn their backs and expect not to get hit. Yep. And then when they get blown up, it's catastrophic. Um, it, it just, I, the game's changed and I don't, I don't think we'll see a return to enforcers or fighting. You may see some tougher guys come back into the, into the four again, some two way players who can play physical, but I don't think you're going to see the fighting again. And that leads us into the the head hitting. Um, I know in youth hockey, it's you know it's any any head contact is automatic uh, uh, match penalty and suspension. Uh, with with the increase of head hits uh, in the NHL, how what do you think? Uh, is you know well, how are they going to discipline that? Because just just a couple weeks ago, Malkin uh, cross checked uh, Borowicki from the Predators, uh, and I, I went on a rant on this uh, last episode. Uh, broke his teeth. He had four broken teeth, and you know he's done for the game. And 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 they gave Malkin a four minute double minor, and he only got suspended four games. Yeah, well. I was actually, it's funny. We did a podcast about this. I was shocked. Melton got four games. I didn't think they were going to give him that many um, because he's a star. So the fact that they gave him four games to me was a little surprising. And they gave Austin Matthews, remember two games for his hit on Yossi. Yep. Um, I was surprised that in a good way that the NHL actually even bothered to suspend star players. To me, it's a good message to send is that, you know, um, anybody can get dinged here. And that's where we should be. I, th I, I'd love to see head hits completely eradicated. If the principal point of the con of contact is the head, I have no problem with throwing a guy out of the game because yeah, it's, I agree with that. It, it's dangerous. It's yep. dangerous. And this is, this is, this is not just hockey. We're talking about, this is the rest of your life. There are guys, I know guys who have still problems with concussions to the point where 
and they haven't played in 10 years, but they can't go outside without sunglasses. Some of them are worried about being able to pick up their kids because they get dizzy because they lose their equilibrium. Uh, you know, they are irritable. They're cranky. They get aggressive. It, they, it has screwed up their life because of these head injuries until we take this stuff more seriously. And I would argue that we are dragging our feet on this and the NHL, NFL, any place where there's impact on the brain, any sport needs to get its head out of its ass and really address this. Yep. And I, I, now have you watched the uh, ice guardian, I think it's on Netflix or it was on Netflix. Um, yeah, you did. Uh, and I believe there was a stat in there. And again, this is off the cuff. So I, I don't have that stat in front of me, but I believe it was something like 20% increase of head injuries since the enforcers have been faded out of the game. And, you know, it's, I couldn't quite understand that because you think you got two guys, you know, beating each other's brains in on the ice, you know, like a, a Bob Probert and a Stu Grimson going at it. You know, how, how is there not more head injuries back when you had guys just pounding the hell out of each other? And I, I just don't know if that's from people turning their backs and, and going head first or if the speed of the game has just increased so much and, you know, you lose an edge and then you're the next thing you know, you're head first into the boards. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear your your take on that. Uh, the speed definitely is part of it. It is it is definitely part of it. The game does move faster. Uh, but guys, again, it goes back to what you're taught as a kid. Um, you know, keeping your head up, anticipating contact, uh, you know, if you're trained that way, you're able to defend against those things and you're alert and aware of it. I don't think it's being taught as much. Uh, and yeah, guys do, they turn and then they get blown up and it just, it's frustrating because when a guy is coming at you at 20 miles an hour and you turn your back and people are like, well, he didn't really let up. It's like you're giving them half a stride or a stride. And I'm not saying this is always the case. Some guys go in with the intent to injure people. But you also have to realize, you know, I mean, you can't stop a car that fast. You're you're on skates. I mean, what are you going to do? Bail out and you might end up injuring yourself too. It's it's it just guys don't want to take hits. I think it leads to more dangerous situations. Uh, but there is also less respect. I think guys are more free with their sticks because of visors and helmets. Um, and helmet technology is good, but it's not great. Right. It's it's nice that it's there. It helps, but it doesn't prevent. Uh, but that's the thing is you, you're not worried about taking a stick in the eye anymore. You wear a visor. You're not worried about getting clunked in the back of the head because you're wearing a helmet. I'm not saying I want to take those things out of the game, and I understand it's an insurance thing, but there is less respect for the damage your stick or anything else can do to the head of an opponent yeah i mean you know i know this is obviously an extreme um example but i mean look look what mcsorley did to brashear several years ago i mean and, and that was just complete disrespect for himself for the game obviously for brashear but um you know they were wondering if brashear would ever step foot on the ice again after a hit like that yeah, the, the um, 
whenever you see an incident like that, you know, Todd Bertuzzi's another one, Steve Moore comes yep. to mind. Yep. Um, that's just, I mean, that's in a whole category by itself. Um, and that sometimes guys snap, they lose it. And, you know, they're just so enraged and just want some sort of thing to happen. You know, they don't, they don't think through their actions, um, regardless of whether there's fighting in the game or not, regardless of whatever penalties may be there enforcers. I mean, things like that happen occasionally and it's a terrible risk and it's a horrible play, but, um, I don't, I don't know that we're going to change the trend that the game is on now, uh, because players do take care of themselves better than officials, especially this season. Um, And that's that's just a fact. But if the NHL is going to get a little more heavy on its suspensions, that is the next great area where they can curb things. Fines don't do anything. These guys don't care about being fined five grand. They don't. No, not at all. So, I mean, even back and it's and it's funny talking about fines that coaches can actually be fined more than the players can because of their their agreement. And I remember hearing a story not to not to get off topic, but Scotty Bowman, when he would get upset and want to, you know, throw sticks and, and go nuts on the bench, he would just tell one of his players, you know, go out there and do it for me and I'll give you five grand because he's not going to get charged 10 or 15,000 for his actions. So he would just have his players go out there and, you know, raise a little hell out there and get in the ref, take a penalty, get fined, and he would just pay the fine for him. Yeah, and that's, I mean... It, it, that is when you start it, Mike brings this up all the time on the show on, on Sunday nights. And, and he says, you know, when bench clearing brawls stopped was when they started suspending the coach. Once the coach was eligible to be suspended for his team being in a bench clearing, they stopped. Yeah. That's, that's and, a good point. So that's a great if point. you, yeah. So if you want to punish the players, I don't know what an effective deterrent it is, but once you get to the coaches, maybe general managers. And the other thing is when you suspend guys for longer periods of time, now they're missing paychecks. That's when it starts to bite them. They don't care about being fined. Yep. Yeah. And I I brought up the enforcer um, topic because, you know, I I think about it once in a while and I know that the new role of the, the pest has come in, you know, you've got your to Chuck's, you've got your Brad Marshans, um, guys like that that just they play on the edge but sometimes they just get a little too over the edge and you know I always use the you know the example I'm sure everyone brings this up man if you know if Marshan you know he, he took out uh, Nicholas Cronwall he was a couple years back or when Cronwall is obviously still playing but he's skating backwards down the blue line out of the play you know the puck was deep in the corner and Marshan skates down the blue line and goes knee to knee on Cronwall's bad knee, takes him out. He was out of the game, um, but there was nobody, no retribution, nothing that had happened. And I always said, like, man, if if the next time Marshan jumps on the ice and he looks over and there's Bob Probert standing there, he's probably going to think twice about going out there and you know trying to lick somebody's face, take out their knee, or slew foot them, you know, in a, on a cheap, dirty play. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, yes, I th- I mean, you look at, you know, P.K. Subban slew footing guys left and right. Oh, yeah. And, and somehow not getting suspended. Um, 
I agree that if somebody goes over and takes his head off one time, he'll start looking over his shoulder. Uh, but that's where the league has to step in and do their part to suspend. Yep. Uh, and, you know, that's that's the new discipline. Um, yeah, I mean, I've seen stuff like that, too. I've seen and, and I have seen moments of retribution, but the, the pest is not a new role. Um, I think it's more celebrated than it used to be. But look at Claude Lemieux with the Avalanche when they were winning Stanley Cups. Look at Asa Tikkanen with the Oilers, those great Oilers teams of the 80s. Tikkanen was an amazing pest. He was a pain. You did not want to play against that guy. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the role goes back through time. That guy's always been there on a, on a successful team. Um, and here's the thing. Marshan can play. He's a great player. He can score. He's incredible. He, he is. Sometimes he gets a little too into his own head, yep. which is what makes him – sometimes a liability but you look at a guy like evander kane i'll bring his name up because he's a tremendous example if he's on the ice and effective for your team you know that's fantastic but where is evander kane often sitting in the playoffs he's in the press box because he got himself suspended right so he's having a great season i think i read that in like 19 games he has 17 points right now well he's playing for a contract he's playing for he's playing for his career yeah, and right he's on now. McDavid's line, so that's helpful. Yeah, and I mean, that's – but same thing, Nazem Kadri is another guy. He yep. basically got run out of Toronto and looks pretty good to me now, but um, he is. He's a pest. He he could be a guy you don't like and are annoyed by and maybe draws you a penalty here and there, but if that guy loses his cool, that doesn't help you. Um, but, yeah, every team needs those guys uh, yeah. if, they're, it's if they're really going to succeed. Sure. That's you know, effective. I know uh, – um, you know, Mickey Redmond said one day, you know, Detroit play in Boston, and he said the goal to this game is to not fire up Brad Marchand because when you fire up Brad Marchand, he takes his game to the next level just to prove, hey, you know what? I'm not only going to get in your head, but now I'm going to go out and score two goals and have two assists. We used to joke in Nashville, um, just kind of, we never actually said this to him, but, you know, behind the scenes we would talk about uh angry shay meaning when shay weber got mad he would just go off and he would hit everything and you know get in a couple of fights might score a goal but he also might make a dumb play you know he he, but he was playing with emotion he was fired up and it was it was fun to watch and and he could be scary for opponents if and a lot of times their goal was just hey let weber sleep don't hit him. Don't poke him. Just let him do his thing and, you know, sleepwalk through the game if you can. And he's still going to hurt you. You know, he still had that tremendous shot. He was still oh scoring God. those goals. But but when he got mad, Angry Shea was a frightening player. And he could just ragdoll guys. He didn't do it often. But, man, oh, what he was he was so strong and just so determined when he was angry. And it just – it was it was another level. Yeah, but, he's a big boy. Yeah, he but he's not like that. He's very very even keel human being. You know, when you talk to him uh, away from the ice, but yep, every once in a while somebody flip his switch. Yeah, I mean that just comes with the territory of the game, you know. Everyone tries to get under each other's skin out there it seems like. Everyone's, you know, chirping and you know, trash talking a little bit to fire people up. And some people definitely take exception and play better to it. And I think Marshan and yep. and, and like you said Shea Weber was one of those players. And, you know, like 
you know, like Nikki said, like you just said, sometimes it's better to let them sleep. Just leave them alone. And an interesting side note on, on Weber, I don't know if you were there at the time, but uh, they did a little, uh, like, after those probably after practice or something at the arena, uh, he took a shot from the 300 level in the back of the arena, and I don't know, did he put it in the net? Uh, he, he put it on the, on the ice. He did. He scored on one of them. I was actually there when we were filming that. I was standing up there next to him. And, uh, yeah, he took a shot, and it went way out wide. He's like, oh, man, I missed that one. It went way out to the right, but then all of a sudden it started hooking. And it hit the ice, and then it started rolling. It, I think it flipped up on edge and started rolling, and it just curled right into the net. Yeah, he scored from the, the 300 level and one end and shot the puck to the other, and it actually went in the net. Is this on YouTube? I'm going to have to find this. I I believe I I think probably. it was at one time. I know I saw it at the time it was on the Predators website, so it probably is. I'm going to find it. That sounds incredible. Um, yeah, I, but, I would just search for something like Shea Weber scores from the upper deck. I'm sure it's out there. Yeah, I'm going to find it. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, before we start wrapping it up, uh, what's what's your uh, thoughts on the future of the Preds? Uh, I think that Nashville is – coming up to a crossroads this is the year they finally are getting production out of guys they've wanted production out of for years um and they made these deals to bring in the ryan johansson's and matt duchene's of the world several seasons ago with the expectation that you know like duchene never quite caught on he was close in colorado but eh, and then you know columbus eh, you know johansson eh, almost these guys were almost the players that you thought they were going to be. Um, and you give up a big asset. You know, you give up a Seth Jones um, to to make that deal. And now to see, it's great to see Duchesne having a good year. Philip Forsberg, who I thought was always probably one of the biggest steals of David Poyle's general managerial career, um, you know, traded for Marty Erat. And it just, you know, Forsberg's been good, but this year he's finding it. And the Predators as a whole are finding it. And the success of UC Soros coming in as the successor to, you know, the Pekka Rene, who was able to get him to the final, but not quite win the cup. This year, the Predators are getting those performances out of those guys that they've been waiting for for several seasons. And UC Soros able to come in as the successor to Pekka Rene has been big and he's played well and he's showing he's capable Roman Yossi is awesome. Should be, if he's not winning the Norris this year, he's definitely second. Um, it just, you know, they have a good core that is finally performing. The thing is, now it's going to get expensive. So, the the pressure on Nashville and specifically on the front office, the scouts, is to draft well, but also right now to sign contracts that make sense. And that the, the Nashville's cap problem is not necessarily this summer, but it's coming in year two, year three, year four. And that's where they're really going to have to find a way to keep these pieces as long as they're performing without overpaying and manage that budget. But they can still be competitive and they are competitive. Uh, but this is going to be a challenging, you know, value judgment stretch for the Predators. And I hate giving guys contracts based on one good year. 
but sometimes you have to do it. So I'm really interested in the challenges that the front office is going to face the next couple of years. It's kind of a tipping point because if they sign some deals and the deals then turn out to go bad, even as soon as next year or the year after, you get plunged into another rebuild. And that is not something the Predators fans want to hear. Um, but it really will depend on the contracts. Yeah, and I always, I, I always, um, you know, bust Dan's chops on this, but um, Philip Forsberg, he, I feel like he's a must sign for Nashville with the production he's put up. Like, like you said, he's finally hitting his stride, and he's he's really good. Uh, do you think they're going to strike that deal? You think they can find something with with Philip that makes sense for both him and the team, or do you think? They're going to look to possibly shop him out. I know this about David Poyle. He'll listen. If you were to call from the Red Wings, if you were to call from the Anaheim Ducks and say, is Forsberg available? He might not be available. But if you call David Poyle and say, hey, if Philip Forsberg were to be available, would you be interested in a package that includes this? He's not going to hang up on you. Uh, and that is that is what good general managers should do. They should always be considering what those options are. I think Predators fans specifically on this one, the closest thing I can relate this to is when Nashville lost Ryan Suter, then lost Shea Weber after they had Pecorine sign a deal. They probably if they had tried to get him to come to the table a year earlier, might've been able to keep Suter and Weber on matching at the time, 7 million a year contracts. Instead, Suter goes to Minnesota. Weber, you remember signed that offer sheet with Philly that they were forced to match. That ends up in Montreal anyway for PK Subban. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's kind of natural. What doesn't want to get burned like that again? And they and, still, and they still boo Suter. Oh, yeah. They're always going to boo Ryan Suter. And so I does Minnesota. Well, yeah. I mean, no, nobody boos Ryan Suter right now. It's Dallas. Um, so it's interesting that he went from the new Minnesota team to the old Minnesota team. Uh, but but Suter, you know, and it was a case where he expressed his displeasure during that season. Uh, I, I mean, I knew he was unhappy with the way things were going. So I don't know how that was missed, or even if it was missed. Maybe it wasn't, but... Um, you know, it just, but that's the way it goes. Sometimes, sometimes there's just nothing you're going to do to keep a guy. I think Forsberg wants to stay. Let me come back to Forsberg. I think he wants to stay. I think he wants to be a part of things. I think they'll find a deal. Nashville is a team that is going to be a cup contender if they keep playing the way they are for the next couple of years. So if you're Forsberg and you're entering your prime and you're really kind of finding it, as we just said, uh, why wouldn't you want to stay there? especially if the, the price is right. You can make $10 million a year, but you might have to go to a crappy team to do it. That is completely up to the individual. What's important to you? Winning, money, a balance of both, yep. or you know, what's your call? So, But I think Forsberg wants to, wants to win. Yep, I, I could see that too. And, you know, while I mess with Dan, I just, I, don't see, I just don't see Forsberg walking away from, like you said, what they have building right now and growing and cultivating I, I think they're going to be really good I mean they have Tanner Janot that's just playing out of his mind he's he's a great young rookie and um, he's definitely going to be a force to reckon with for years to come as long as he stays healthy 
Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you wish everybody good health. and uh, But Jano's been a guy. It's been fun to watch his emergence this year. And honestly, it took John Hines a while to really get his buy-in. But this is the year for Nashville. Much like Buffalo is getting theirs from Don Granado right now. Um, if we have any Western New York folks listening, I mean, the Sabres are changing. Everything's changing inside that room. And I think that coming out of the post-Laviolette era, that's what's happening for Nashville right now is John Hines is finally getting his buy-in and what his vision was and players are getting on board. And now they're seeing success from it. Yeah. And I, and I hate to, to ask this question with that being said, but now you take a look at a team like Detroit and I know you've got a, a profound hockey mind and um, some insights and, but you take a look at a team like Detroit who is a dumpster fire right now. I mean, they've got, Everyone's calling for Blashill's head. Um, people are starting to question Eiserman, like, man, why did you keep this coach around so long? We've, we've absolutely been destroyed. We, we had a game against Pittsburgh. We let up the most goals in, in Cap Era hockey. And, you know, we're, we're a train wreck. Where do we go? Like, re- the rebuild is not there. And I, I believe the rebuild is there. I believe Larkin is doing his job as a captain. I believe they've got the young guys, you know, coming up. But when does it turn? Like, what? I mean, what, what do you think the future for the Red Wings looks like? Let's let's start here. The Red Wings were not making the playoffs this year. And the no. fact that they were even mid-pack in the division or in the conference for a while, which they were, was ahead of schedule. Um, I don't have strong opinions on keeping or letting go of Jeff Blashill. I think that um, you have to... In this is Steve Eiserman's case. Go with the guy that you feel comfortable with keeping, who sees eye to eye with your vision, who aligns with you with your messaging. And if Eiserman says, I want A, B, and C, and Blashill goes, me too, uh, it's a lot easier to keep that guy around. Uh, or maybe you have somebody who challenges you a little bit and, and you know you have a good rapport with. I, I don't know what Eiserman wants out of his coach, but um, I'm not in a hurry to run him out of town on a rail. And you know what? Detroit fans are spoiled. I'll say it. I'm spoiled. Um, I'm extremely spoiled. There was a lot of success for a long, long time, and rebuilding hurts. Yep. Yep. No one likes it. No one likes to lose. Yeah, no one likes to lose. So, yeah, you're going to be upset, but you're ahead of schedule, and you've got some good young players. You're drafting well. Let's let's not jump off the cliff here yet. It's going to be another couple of years. But in another couple of years, you're going to be fighting for a playoff spot. And then a year or two after that, maybe you become a destination again. And guess what? People want to come back to hockey town. Everything runs in cycles. Yep. No, I totally agree. And, and you hit it you know, right on the head, being spoiled. You know, my growing up watching four Stanley Cups being raised, um, you know, some people go their entire lives without – seeing a Stanley cup or, you know, and Sabres fans, I know some Sabres fans that only remember one playoff run. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a level of being spoiled and, you know, with, with Blashill, I know that, you know, one comment that Larkin made that, that alarmed me a little bit with Blashill's tenure was that, you know, the young guys here and he kind of paused for a second. He goes, we're just not having fun right now. And as a young team, I just feel that, you know, you want the guys to, to be engaged. You want them to be there. And I know they're young. I know they're rookies. But you don't want them to have that feeling of, you know, buyer's remorse of, you know, man, I, I could have signed 
you know, I wish I could have signed somewhere else or, man, I can't wait till my contract is up. This just sucks. I don't want to keep doing this. And, you know, it raised some questions to me personally of, you know, is that a locker room thing or is that just a, you know, are the guys just defeated? You know, is there is there a reason that guys are not having fun? Losing's hard and losing can become its own culture in a room. Um, some of that is the message coming from up top, but you know, and, and how you go about your business every day, does the coach and the staff and the scouts and everybody coming glum is the trainer in there all pissed off that he's got to be at work today. You don't want that. You want guys who, who are happy that they're coming in, um, happy to be in the building and, and want to be a part of that team. And you know, it's, it's one of those things where for Detroit, it is, and it can be fragile, especially for young players, because you learn your attitude from the guys around you. And that's one of the things where those younger players who, when Iserman was playing and he was leading those Red Wing teams, or when, uh, you know, Lidstrom was playing and he was leading those Red Wings teams, you learn from some pretty darn good role models within your locker room. Uh, but the coach can also help set that, which is, or you have to offset the coach. I mean, look, Mike Babcock is no angel. And a lot of people don't like Babcock, don't like his style. But you could also see that there were players who knew how to counterbalance that and keep the room, you know, together and what have you. So honestly, if you're Detroit, you know, would I be surprised if they went for a coaching change? No. Um, and that is a bit of an alarming comment for a player to actually say that. I don't know if that's a Blash Hill thing or not, but that's up to Eiserman to find out. And honestly, if it is, he cannot hesitate maybe at the end of the season to pull the trigger uh, and make a, a change for that Red Wings organization. Uh, but, you know, that's losing is hard and it can be infectious just as much as winning. Yep. And that's, that is true. Losing is not fun. The guys don't have fun. And I'm sure that contributes to, you know, a lot of what Larkin's comments were surrounding um, but it, it just made me wonder a little bit, you know, if, if, you know, we're just not having fun and it's like, well, I know when I don't have fun, I try to change that. Um, you know, and granted, I'm not in a multi-million dollar contract playing professional hockey, but, you know, you got to think, you know, even some of these, like I could see a Bertuzzi, you know, ship in town. I think he's just kind of his own animal. I, I like Bertuzzi. I think he brings a, a, bit of an edge to his game um he's kind of teetered off the last bit of the season here but um you know i, I could see him decide, you know because he already went through the arbitrary process and went through the arbitration with the league and the red wings and i just uh you know i could see him being one of the guys that just says you know i'm, I'm done and, and gone and whether or not he's a building block of the team, I, I'm not quite sure if he's in the future, if they're going to, you know, there's some talks I've been reading about. Obviously, the sources are um, just supposed inside people in Detroit, but, you know, that he could be a, a great trade bait target, somebody that could get a few more picks for Eisenman in the next couple of drafts and really continue to build on that youth movement, similar to what he did in Tampa Bay. Um, so it'll be interesting, you know, for, for me being a Detroit fan on, you know, who's behind the bench and which players remain, you know, on the roster moving into next season. 
Yeah, and you know, that's any team is now starting to make those decisions, right? Seattle is coming up on a period where they're really going to have to decide who stays, who goes. They started it a little bit at the the you know trade deadline. Um, any team in a rebuild, Detroit, Ottawa, um, all those teams, but even you know teams like Dallas, what do they do? They're they're a borderline team, might make the playoffs, might not. You know the Sharks. So the reason I bring up all these different teams is no matter what your team is doing, whether they're in the playoffs and winning, playing really well, or you're hitting the panic button, you're not the only one. And other teams, other GMs around the league are going to be making these decisions. They're going to be casting aside some players in favor of others. They're going to be looking for answers either in free agency at the trade or trades at the draft. Um, so things can turn around and can be different. Sometimes it is a case of needing a breath of fresh air, whether it's a fresh, fresh message from a coach or a player just needs to go somewhere else. Um, you know, that that's, that's part of the game. Sometimes you just burn out on certain things. So yeah, change is a constant uh, in, in the NHL. And you know what? I, I mean, if you're a team that is out of the playoffs, you should not fear change. You should embrace it because that's how you're going to get better. And the Golden Knights are in a little predicament themselves too, with their with their salary cap. So they, you know, they they could be. I don't want to say they're in a rebuild, but they 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 got some questions to answer for themselves. The goal. So I've been following the Golden Knights for several years now. I've been covering them, and uh, I look at that team. Number one, Pete DeBoer has just ruined another goalie. He couldn't chase Mark Andre Fleury out of town fast enough. And now he's doing the same thing to Robin Leonard. So congratulations, Pete. You're destroying another goalie. Um, and Logan Thompson, I think, is a stud. I think the kid's an absolute stud. But I hope the hockey gods are with him and he does not befall the same fate. The other thing we need to talk about is why Kelly McCrimmon apparently never decided as GM of the Golden Knights that the salary cap applied to him. Uh, as, 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 you know, the kids are fond of saying these days, the math isn't mathing, right? They are so far over the cap so far. And it's, and it's ridiculous. The contracts they signed. And when they signed them, the minute DeBoer decided he was over Mark Andre Fleury, they signed Leonard to a five year, $5 million deal. We are not a year into that deal yet. And now Leonard's on the outside. And there are people speculating in the Vegas media that he'll never play for the golden Knights again, which is, I, I doubt that's going to be the case, but DeBoer is destroying Leonard's confidence, whatever he had left right now. Man, and he, he could fill a role behind uh, Nedeljkovic with Grice, you know, heading out. I, I would love to have yeah. Leonard between him and, and Nedeljkovic splitting the season. I think oh, you both. love him. I you think you don't pay it back on $5 million, though. You don't pay no, it back on $5 no, million. No, of course he's... not. Not at that salary. So um, that so that said, yes, Vegas is a dumpster fire and they are in trouble. And if they miss the playoffs this year, honestly, if I own that team, I'd clean house. Yep. Some they they've mismanaged themselves into this pit that they're in, and there is no one to blame except the mismanagement of the assets of the team. Totally. And you know, one of the like you see all these guys like mysteriously going on injured reserve and. You know, there's questions like, oh, are these guys really injured? Because now magically Mark Stone's back in the lineup. So, you know, are they not being as, I guess, transparent as they should be um, with everything going on? And 
the other thought is, are they trying to over massage, if you will, that Tampa Bay rule where the cap doesn't matter in uh, the playoffs. So now you dump all these guys into IR in, in hopes of bringing them back. Yeah, they, um, they're so at the GM's meetings, um, which a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, they brought it up and there's traction for a salary cap or some sort of thing, put it in air quotes, to extend into the playoffs. They decided that there's enough momentum that they'll talk about it in the summer, but they weren't going to come out with anything there. But what what they have basically said is change is a coming. So, That's which good. it needs to. I it agree. needs to. Um, because, yes, do I think the Golden Knights are abusing long-term IR? Absolutely. Uh, Nikita Kucherov was ready to come back two months before the end of the season last year, but they kept him on long-term IR. Why? Because they couldn't afford him. Right. So, yeah, yeah, of course teams are it's busting the salary cap with these moves. It is. It is a shell game. And, you know, guys, injuries in the NHL have always been a shell game. You know, uh, they may say, oh, it's left knee when it's the right elbow. It's just, you know, you don't have to be forthcoming with that kind of stuff. So, And there's no way to prove it. If a guy says he's got a back injury, how do you prove a back injury? My back hurts. Right. Okay, well, there's no structural damage. Yeah, but my back still hurts. It tightens up. I can't skate. I can't play. Same thing, goalies in a groin injury. Oh, I got a groin injury. You know, I can't push off. I can't move laterally right now. It's like, well, there's no structural damage. No, but it hurts. Yeah, yeah I know. So, I had to... How do you prove it? Yeah, yeah as you a, don't. As a goal, I know that all too well because I just I've been battling through a minor uh, groin injury the last couple months. So, yeah, it's that's something that's. You don't want to mess with. But yeah. it's the only sport in the world where we can talk openly about pulling groins. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, right. Well, I do so, want to say this really quick before you say that. Um, you know, talking about Vegas, one of the other th- thoughts that comes to my mind is that if I'm a young player, do I want a chance going there to just get scratched or sent down and not truly develop because they mismanage their team so poorly? that now I'm just going to be a, a, you know, a chess piece, my entire career bouncing around to manipulate their salary. You know, I don't think I'd want to take the chance at that. I would try to avoid that. Like the plague. I, I want to get into the league. I want to play. I want to d- develop and I want to do my best to become elite and to be a star, not to be bounced around, you know, from minors to IR to, you know, all over the place, just only because of the poor mismanaged team that, that I was placed on. So I'd be a little afraid that, that, you know, some of these youthful players aren't going to really want to go there. These young guys. Well, they're going to get traded away anyway. McCrimmon is not shy about dealing away his prospects. So, and look at Nick Suzuki's turned out to be a pretty good player. Peyton Krebs is turning out to be a pretty good player. Uh, The jury's still out on Cody Glass. I don't think he's going to be what they thought he was going to be. He might have been one of the good trades to get rid of, but I'll be honest with you. I'm worried for Vegas. They don't have a cupboard. Nope, they don't. Yeah, yeah, Cody Glass just got sent down to Milwaukee today, I believe it was, too. Uh, And and don't forget Alex Tuck, too. That was a steal. I think that was a steal for Buffalo. And you talk about you want to talk about happiness in the room and a guy who loves coming to work. It's Alex Tuck. 
Tuck was born in Syracuse, grew up rooting for the Sabres at a time when no one wants to go to Buffalo. Alex Tuck couldn't be happier to be pulling on a Sabres sweater. And you know what? All year since that trade, as opposed to the doom and gloom of Eichel being around, and look, there's blame on both sides of the Eichel situation. But it, it goes both ways, and it just it was not going to resolve itself peacefully, and that's just how it was. Yep. But look at the change in the Sabres dressing room. You know, they, they have the right coach in place. They have Taku comes in who loves being there every day, and it's revitalized guys like Jeff Skinner, Tage Thompson. Could push 40 goals this year. Holy cow, who knew? I know, I and that's that's a trade that Sabres fans crucified everybody for. Ryan O'Reilly goes to St. Louis, immediately wins a cup. Well, O'Reilly, as he ages, is coming down. And guess what? Tage Thompson is back in the middle and has 37 goals, I think, as of today, after today's game. So look out. Things are changing. The attitude's changing. And Alex Tuck likes coming to work every day. He enjoys it. And you cannot understate the value of that. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think Buffalo is going to be one of those teams to kind of keep an eye on in the next couple of years. I, I like what they've done in the last half of the season. Um, they're playing like they're having fun out there. They're not treating it so much. I mean, obviously, I'm not in the locker room, but it, it feels like they're they're out there to have fun and just compete and not making it so much of a, a job. But, um, you know, you just see, you know, when they did the Rick Jenneret tribute, um you know, the guys in the locker room afterwards, they were laughing, they were joking, they were, you know, having a good time. And, and I, I get that's in every locker room, but Buffalo, who's really had, you know, that losing culture for so many years, and to see the guys finally laughing and acting more cohesive, it's, you know, I, I'm not a Sabres fan, but I like the Sabres. And I, and I really hope that they can keep this going. And I, I actually would have loved to have seen them win the Cup this year. I know that's unrealistic, but... Um, yeah, it's just, it's nice to see that they're finally kind of clicking and putting it together and playing some good games. I mean, I turned on the radio for literally five minutes tonight and listened just to five minutes and they had two shorthanded goals in a matter of like 40 seconds or something like that. It was extremely quick, but yeah, it's just nice that they're finally clicking and, and getting, you know, cohesive and, and putting in a good, a good second half to the season. Yeah, and they're a team that's that feels like they're building something now. And that is the most important thing to getting guys to come in and buying into the message, whether it's Nashville, Detroit, Buffalo, whoever, you feel like you're putting something together. That's Look at Minnesota. That's exactly what Minnesota did. Billy Guerin comes in and says, okay, this is my team, and I'm going to commence building it. And look at where Minnesota is. They are, I mean, if Colorado wasn't such a powerhouse, Minnesota could be competing for the division lead, but they are a solid playoff contender. And that leads us uh, into the playoffs. Um, is You know, it's getting to be that time of year. Uh, do you have any thoughts you know, on the playoffs, maybe predictions, uh, you know, both West and East Con- Eastern Conference? Uh, I'm terrible with predictions. Um, so I will, I will kind of go off the board here with some stuff and I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to pick a dark horse in each side. I love the East. I think the East is going to be the most entertaining playoffs we've seen in a long time. Um, depending on who ends up as the first round matchup, like Tampa Bay is sitting behind Toronto by eight points and just beat the absolute tar out of them. Uh, and of course, Toronto fans panic with every loss and plan the parade with every win, but, um, 
that one's going to be something. If there is a Dark Horse team that's going to come out of all of this, though, I have been talking about the Penguins needing to break up their core for three years. They haven't in every year. They get into the playoffs, and they do some damage, and they're a really good team. I'm going to say watch out for the Penguins in the East, uh, and that pains me because I keep waiting for the wheels to fall off, and they just never seem to. In the West, um, if I'm going to pick a Dark Horse... Um, and, and right now we don't know exactly who's going to finish where and how they're going to go. I mean, I've liked the Flames all season long. Colorado, here's the thing. Colorado needs to prove to me that they can win in the playoffs, and they just haven't yet. They also need to stay healthy, by the way. But St. Louis. St. Louis is that team. I like physical teams. I think defense and goaltending can win you some championships. St. Louis now has one goalie who's already won a Stanley Cup and a second goalie in Billy Husso who's been the next big thing for a couple of years, and he's finally, finally uh, showing that he is capable. So I think St. Louis is the team I'm worried about in the West. Interesting. See, I, I was sold on the wild. I was like, man, as soon as they got flurry, I was like, they are just putting it together. They're not afraid to open the checkbook and just, you know, they're buying the cup this year. Um, but, yeah, like I, I agree. Every time I watch Detroit play St. Louis – um, which is only a couple of times a year, they are much bigger, they are fast, they are physical, and, you know, when it gets into the playoffs, that's exactly what you want. I think I, I think that's a really good prediction. I, I overlooked them for, you know, the last couple of weeks. I haven't even considered St. Louis, but that's, that's a great point. Yeah, the, uh, the, West, the specifically the Central, is going to be a lot of fun. I don't know what Edmonton has. I don't think Los Angeles beats Edmonton if it's a first-round matchup. I, I don't know that Los Angeles beats anybody in a first-round matchup. I'm just not believing in them. The Pacific is what it is. I don't think Vegas makes the playoffs. And uh, and there we are. I think Dallas is just good enough. They're going to be the 1-8 matchup probably with Colorado and get steamrolled. Um, you know, Nashville at that point would end up facing Calgary, which would be a really interesting series. Uh, that one would be a lot of fun, but I'll tell you what, I will circle Minnesota, St. Louis, your team and my team that we both like, that one is going to be a, a, a must watch in yeah, round that's one. Be if that's fun. the matchup. And I, yeah. I, I actually had Florida and Colorado and my, uh, if you, if you want to say dark horse, my, you know, uh, would be, uh, Calgary. Um, they played a really good game the other day. Yeah, uh, the Predators had to win in a shootout. Um, so, you know, just – but I, I just think Calgary is – they're a tough team along with I Florida. Think, Florida's really good at home. I agree. Calgary is a very, very good team. I've been high on them all season. And now that um, – I mean, and don't discount, you know, they made a coaching change too and brought in a guy who's won some Stanley Cups. And – it really has that team believing in itself this year. So, you know, I'm, I think the flames are definitely going to be a challenge. And I wondered when Florida, remember they had the controversy earlier this year and, and Quenville had to go. And um, I wondered how that was going to go for them. And they stumbled a little bit, but honestly, Andrew Brunette has done a much better job than anybody could possibly imagine. And uh, Florida has stayed solid and, most importantly, Florida's been getting the goaltending, which has failed them at times. So, yeah, the Panthers look really, really good. And holy cow, the season Huberdeau's having. 
just amazing. Like Barkov is always the guy everybody focuses on, but this year it is the Jonathan Huberdeau show and it's fantastic. There's so much fun. It is fantastic. Much I hate watching him play Detroit, but he is fun to watch. Yeah, 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 it is a lot. I mean, there's not a lot of teams you like to see when you're a team out of the playoffs. You know <laughs> what I mean? But um, it's fun to watch them right now, and just they are firing on all cylinders. If if you haven't watched a Florida Panthers game yet this year, find time. Just watch one before the playoffs and prepare to be amazed. Absolutely. They just, man, they just put it yeah, on. They, all cylinders are, are firing. Yeah, and Detroit just had uh, a couple of games with Florida, <laughs> so they they know all too well. Yeah, I mean, you had, you had guys splitting the D. I mean, it was just it was incredible to watch. I mean, just the passing alone is like something out of I, I don't even know where you would find it, but it's it's incredible behind the back, stick to stick through traffic, sauce passes. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, they had um, I forget who it was, but from down in their zone, just onside over the stick of Mo Sider and goes in on a breakaway and scores. And I think it was Huberdo. And it was like, oh, my God, how did that happen? Like, he, he got the pass through, like, three defender or three opposed, opposing team players and right to the stick of, of Huberdo right before he was offsides. Like, it was just such mm. an incredible time play. And I mean, you can just tell they've played together for a while, but or long enough. But it's just, it was just incredible to watch the skill that they brought on the ice. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it is a lot of fun. It really is. And you know what? This is going to be an incredible run to the finish now. Don't forget, by the way, the NHL has extended the regular season to May 1st. Playoffs start May 2nd. But I'll tell you what, we are all in for a treat this this next 10 days is going to be fantastic yeah i can't oh. wait i'm going to watch as much hockey as i can oh yeah um before we let you go tom uh we have a clip of your jared smith's an overtime goal i'd like to play sure back to the point here's blunt down the wall spalling down low to 2-2 center smithson score jared smithson wins it in overtime I just love the energy. Oh, I, I love it. I, you don't hear that too much nowadays. And um, I mean, besides Jack Edwards and I, I forget. Uh, his name I, I don't want to go in on him. But oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I love the energy. Love it. Love it. Love it. I drink a lot of coffee. Um, <laughs> you know, it, uh, it it's uh, man. How can you not get excited watching this game? How can you not enjoy the moments? And I just, like, you know, I'm an emotional human being, and I do. I get wrapped up in it in the wins and losses, and I want the guys to win all the time around me because I'm around these guys. Like, I still pull for the Preds, um, not so much because I have a, a fealty to the team, but because I still have friends who work there, because I still have friends in Nashville. I want them to win for them. Yep. You know, um, the, just like there's certain players who I would love to see win. But, you know, it's funny, the the part you didn't play after that, I was with uh, Wade Belak was in the booth with me. Um, and uh, he he got yeah. he says, I got so excited, I almost swallowed my cough drop. <laughs> um, you know, it just because he had had a sore throat that whole series. And of course, we beat Anaheim that 
beating Anaheim that series was their the Preds' first ever playoff win, and oh, it was so. Yeah. yeah, it was so special. I remember that 2-2 in the corner. He feeds it out in front. Smithson puts it home. Speaking of Jared Smithson, you better believe I, I interviewed him after that. Um, and, you know, just that. And, of course, working with Wade was a treat. And I, I miss him so much. Um, you know, it uh, it was a special time. It was a really, really special time. And, and I'll never forget that. That whole series with Anaheim. We almost got in a fight with the fans in front of us because we got booted out of our regular press box because national TV was in, Canadian TV was in, national radio was in. So they fan everybody out further. And guess what? Visiting radio, you are the absolute lowest of the low on the list. We ended up sitting where reporters normally sit. And there were fans like two feet below us. And so they hear, they heard our entire broadcast and a lot of them were turning around and yelling rude things. And, um, you know, Wade basically just said, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and, you know, it, it just, he's like, okay, yeah. You want to climb over the wall, do it. Oh. Um, you know, and so I, I was very well protected when I called games for the Predators, man. I played big at home and on the road. I had Grimson, Belak, right. Jim McKenzie. Um, who else did I have? I, I had a couple other just like, guys. I'm like, man, I never, never felt like I was in you, any danger whatsoever. back there. But Stu Grimson yeah. was a great guy, though. I mean, he was, he's actually a lawyer. Uh, he's just, he's a wonderful guy. I, I actually was able to talk to him a couple times when I was in, in Nashville. Yeah, good dude. Yeah, they're, they're all good dudes. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget that game, that series, uh, that call. For sure. For sure. That's one of my favorite things. All right. Well, thank you for this, for your time. And uh, really uh, got some really good insights that that I didn't know. Some I did, some I didn't, but thank you again. Yeah, it was, it was great picking your brain and really, uh, you know, I definitely learned something and, you know, I love learning and, you know, you definitely brought a lot of outside the box to me thoughts and made me think about things. So yeah, really appreciate you, you joining the show. And, you know, again, anyone listening out there, be sure to check out the Talking Puck podcast. It's on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook Live. Um, and make sure you follow uh, Tom at, at Callahan on air. So thanks. Again. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Absolutely. It's it's been a lot of fun, guys. Thank you so much. Take care and good luck with your show as well. And uh, yeah, no matter no matter who you're rooting for or what you're rooting for. I mean, it's a great game. <laughs>